Hello and welcome to another season of PhD Pending, the podcast for early career humanities scholars. My name is Anne Mahler and I have a PhD in English Literature. Together we will deep dive into different aspects of PhD life and explore what it really means to do a PhD in the humanities. If you haven't listened to our last episode before the season break, you might be wondering why Jenny and Aideen aren't here to present the show with me. And that's because they have stepped down from their roles as co-hosts to focus on their creative writing projects outside their PhDs. But that's not the end of the show. I feel like there is so much that we haven't talked about, but since it would be a bit boring for you to listen to me waffle on about my PhD experience, I'll invite friends, colleagues and members of the PhD pending community in to chat about their PhD experiences with me. So don't worry, you'll still get the same PhD content as you did before, just with more diverse insights. And that also means that if you want to talk about a topic that you feel like we haven't covered yet, you can message us or send an email and come on to the show. Our social media handles and email address haven't changed, so you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at phdpenningpod or send us an email at phdpenningpod at gmail.com. Having said all that, I'll stop waffling and we'll get to today's episode. We're in the middle of the second pandemic summer and with things slowly opening back up again, there's definitely a lot of anxiety flying around. When the reopening anxiety hits me, I get super stressed out and I usually do the super healthy thing of distracting myself and going onto Twitter and Instagram and that's how I came across Cindy Veltheis. Cindy is an associate research scientist and research psychologist at Columbia University and has been giving talks on PhD-related stress and struggling with productivity and motivation during the pandemic. I felt like that's something we all can relate to, and so I invited Cindy on to PhD Pending to chat with me. So my guest today is Cindy Veldhuis. She has a bachelor's in theatre and psychology as well as a master's in cognitive psychology from the University of Oregon and a PhD in psychology with a health and psychology emphasis from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Chicago, my favorite city in the United States. Uh, she is currently an associate research scientist at Columbia University and her area of research is on LGBTQ intimate relationships. She also has another area of research focusing on the effects of the 2016 election on LGBTQ individuals and a long-term study on the mental health effects of the pandemic. Outside of work, she loves the theater, making stuff like printmaking, ceramics and other good things and watching way too many DIY videos on YouTube. Cindy, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to have you and we have to be careful not to talk about DIYs too much. I just saw your mid-century modern golden lamp on Instagram and I got really excited. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I'm curious, thinking about DIY, so uh, what are you working on at the moment? So I am kind of like three quarters of the way through a ton of projects. And so I'm actually, I'm taking most of this week off to finish them because I feel like I've just sort of created chaos in my home that's not sustainable any longer. I made a lamp this weekend um, and... Like I find ceramics online that I want to try to replicate. And so I've been doing that as well. So that's been really fun. And it's nice to actually like literally create things with your hands. Um, 
to sort of like get you out of the work. Yeah. So Cindy is here with us today because she's giving international talks on motivation, productivity, and focus to reduce PhD-related stress. Um, something I think we all struggle with, especially now that we've been dealing with a pandemic for over a year and its aftermath, essentially. So Cindy, do you want to start by telling us a bit more about these seminars and these workshops and where you've given them so far? Sure. I um, have been giving them in across the United States. I gave a talk in London and it's it's all in, in quotes because it's all virtual. Um, which is really kind of a bummer. Um, I did one in London and I did one in um, Amsterdam and then multiple places in the United States. And it's been primarily PhD students who have asked for me to talk. I also gave a talk to a group of master's students and then a few groups that are more mixed. Um, like I gave a talk at a Polar Institute, which was really kind of fascinating. And I actually would have liked them to talk to me about their work more than me talk to them about this. Um, but mostly because I was imagining like this room full of Polar bears and penguins and stuff like that but and the big furry coats <laughs> yes yeah brilliant and so really a wide range of different people and also different experiences what do you think are or were the most prevalent feelings across the different phd cohorts yeah i think a huge one is isolation and i think that's particularly prevalent among people who are just starting their phds or their masters or their postdocs or their new faculty positions this year this is a really rough year to be starting something new because you don't get to be literally a part of anything like everything is from your home and i think that that really creates a lot of challenges for feeling like you belong it creates challenges for like developing your identity as a student, as an academic, as a researcher. Um, and it also makes it even more isolating, I think, because at least if you have been there for a year, you've got some relationships established um, with your mentors, with your colleagues, with your collaborators, with your um, cohort. And I think that that can sort of help because then you can sort of continue those. But if you're having to meet everyone online and you don't ever get those like nice little like water cooler conversations where you're just sort of incidentally meeting someone while you're making your tea or something, you're only going to meet the people that you have to meet and you don't get to meet anyone else. Um, and so you're not creating like those nice friendships, those light sort of relationships that I think are really important for sustaining all of us. I think a lot of people are struggling with feeling like they're not doing enough. And some of that's because I think a lot of people struggle with motivation, with concentration. And so for some things, it can take even longer to do things than it did before, which can be really stressful and frustrating. And I think also people are just, I don't know who people are comparing themselves to, but we all tend to engage in a lot of social comparison where we're comparing ourselves to our classmates, our peers, our collaborators. And if you're just by yourself making those comparisons, like it can just really make you feel very distressed and like you're not doing a good enough job or not doing enough. Um, and so I think a lot of people are feeling like they don't know if they're doing enough, their, their sense is that they're not doing enough, that other people are doing more than they are um, and handling things better. Um, and I think also people are feeling a bit of drift, like they don't really know what they're doing, why they're doing it, how to do it. And a lot of people I think are struggling with actually even reaching out for help from people. Um, so I think that there's just this whole storm of things that have made being an academic really complicated right now. Have you gotten any inkling about what role social media plays in that? I'm thinking, you know, academic Twitter and this kind of performance aspect of 
especially academic social media. Yeah, that's interesting. So academic Twitter has like both this like fantastic side and then this dark side, right? So um, I think for me, academic Twitter has been a really great place. But I also am aware that like, I'm not sharing my failures on academic Twitter necessarily. I'm just sharing some of the good things or things that I feel comfortable that I've struggled with in the past, maybe talking about a little bit now, but I don't talk about the things that are really challenging for me. And I think sometimes it can weigh on you if you're constantly seeing people like getting jobs and getting publications and getting grants. And if you're feeling like you're not doing all of those things, or even if you are, but you still feel like you're less than because of it. Um, so Twitter can definitely um, support even more social comparison, which can be like really bad for mental health. Um, and I think in academia, we're always feeling like we're behind someone else and that there's always someone who's doing better than us. So it's always a struggle, even when we're all in person. Yeah. And is that something that the students also pointed out to you? Was that one of the big factors they were talking about? Or what were some of the other challenges that came up in their experiences? Yeah, I think the social comparison, definitely. I think it is challenging, though, if you are with your cohort or with your classmates, with your peers, to talk about that openly. Like, I think all of these things are hard to talk about openly in academia because it's not like we feel like we're in direct competition with other people, but we don't want to be seen as weak or not doing as good a job because we just worry so much about how other people will think about us. Um, so I think there have definitely been some groups that I've talked to have been more comfortable being open with each other. And I think they have created like supportive groups with each other, um, even after I talked to them. So I thought that was really good. But I think a lot of people talk about like not having motivation, not feeling like they can stop their work. Like there's no end to the day of work. Um, the blurring of lines between work and home is really challenging depression is challenging and the isolation, all of those kinds of things, and just managing your time as well. Yeah, I think um, just looking at my time during the PhD, I always struggled keeping that work-life balance. And I think managing research in your own four walls, being at home, makes it even more difficult to kind of you know, just relax at the end of the day, because potentially in academia, you could work 24-7 if you wanted to, right? And that's that's one of the, that definitely was one of the main issues for me. So it's interesting to hear that that also came up. Yeah, and I think some people have strategies for overcoming that, like creating very clear rituals for the beginning and ending of the day. So for me, like when I make my second cup of tea, that means it's time to work. So I may nurse that first cup of tea for a little bit too long to avoid work or I may try to drink it really quickly if I'm very excited about what I'm going to do. But that's a nice signifier to me, like that's when the day starts. And I, we have a student in our program who has a, like a portable desk. And so when he takes that desk down, that's the end of his day. And he can't go back to work again that day after it's come down. So once he makes that decision, then it's done. I've heard about people who take their actual time for their commute in the morning as a way to start their day. So if they used to like drive for 30 minutes, they will take a walk for 30 minutes and then start work. So it feels like it's the same thing. So I think there are all these things that you can do to sort of create a little bit of structure around it. Yeah, somewhat of like physical boundaries almost, you know, having that walk or putting away that desk. So tell me about, you know, the kind of groups that A, invite you in and B, what was kind of your 
goal in creating this workshop, this seminar? So um, it's been all student groups primarily who've invited me to talk um, with differing levels. Like when I spoke at the Polar Institute, that was a mix of postdocs. I think there were even some junior faculty there and students, although maybe we decided not to have the junior faculty because we didn't want the students to feel like they couldn't talk openly. Um, that can be challenging if they're a faculty in there because they have an evaluative role on them. So it's been all student postdoc groups. And it started because our own PhD students, you know, it's, it's a struggle for everyone. And they have had some challenges like everyone with motivation, with just feeling like they can be productive and stay on task and stay on top of things. And so they asked me and the other psychologists to do like lectures one after the other, like a month in between. Um, and my colleague did one on how to cope with stress. And then I was asked to do one on how to be productive. And I think I structured it sort of with this idea that like, this isn't an easy time. So I'm not going to do a talk on just like all the ways that you can be more productive. It has to really take into account the actual context that we're all living in. And my sense is that it's important to be productive, but it's more important to feel like whatever is going on for you is okay. And for some people, if they're not productive, that can be even worse for their mental health when they're students than um, if they just sort of take a break. And so I think it's important to recognize that being productive for some people, most of us in academia, it's an important part of our identity. It's an important part of how we like feel good about ourselves and our worlds. And if we're not feeling productive, that can be even worse. So I think it wasn't aimed at like forcing people to be productive despite what's going on. It's how do you sort of work around what's going on and feel like you've got some modicum of control of your life and that you're getting the stuff done that you want to or need to get done. Not to reinforce like the hyper productivity of academia necessarily. I certainly feel called out now because I definitely define, define myself over being productive and writing a certain amount of words every day that was a big big part of doing my PhD and like how I measured productivity so I'm definitely feeling called out at the moment. <laughs> what were some of the strategies that you know students shared with you before that you got then into um, explaining a couple of ways that you think are effective? Yeah I think like for some of them using their cohorts for support was really important and I I think that that's really helpful. And especially, I think it's more possible for, as I said, cohorts that are already established. So brand new students, it's really hard to create that sort of community. But if you've already got an established peer group, then that can be really helpful. These aren't necessarily all things that people shared with me during the meetings, but one of the people I follow on Twitter, Miria Holman, has this um, way that she rewards herself for her productivity. So she will, at the beginning of a semester, like create her entire goals for her this semester and the number of points that each of those things are worth. And then she assigns a reward structure to those points. So like if she gets 50 points, then she can go out to dinner, you know, or get some delivery or something. So there's all these things that she can work towards. And so she, for her, that's a really successful and uh, efficacious way of keeping on track. And then one of the people, I have a productivity group on Slack, and one of the people in my group started something like that too. And I, I don't know how it's worked out in the long term, but I think it's a really creative way to do it. And that doesn't work for everyone, but I think figuring out what works for you is really important because I think one of the things I talk about a lot with PhD students is like, it's really important to create habits that are sustainable over the long term. 
So I feel like a lot of times in academia, we think like, once I'm done with this grant, like my life will go back to normal, everything will be fine. And like, there's no such thing in academia, because there's always going to be another like super huge um, deadline or something else that's going to mean that we have to put things aside. And so you have to work in a way that's sustainable so that you're never like doing those highs and lows of productivity or like pushing aside your entire personal life in order to get things done. I think that that can be disastrous for relationships and for mental health as well. Um, I already talked about the rituals to start and stop. I think some people have talked about like reconnecting to things that they're passionate about, that they are excited about either from pre-pandemic or pre-academia, um, like photography or cooking everyone made sourdough starter or banana bread or whatever at the beginning of the pandemic. For some people though, that's been a really nice source of like break from academia. Creating protected times in calendars. So I use something called time boxing where I actually block out time in my calendar for each of my projects. And so A, it makes it look like I'm busy and so I don't schedule things during those times. And B, like I just come in in the beginning of the day and I know exactly what I'm supposed to work on because it's already in my calendar for me to do. So I think things like that can be really helpful. Um, and then one of my colleagues on my productivity group, Sakira, created something called the Lot Planner. So it's the Life on Track Planner, and um, that's available for purchase. And it's created for people in academia to sort of help them get connected to their goals, get connected to their, like, all the things that help them be more productive. I kind of want to get into your productivity group on Slack. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I highly recommend it. And I think it's... It's been a really good group in terms of feeling connected to people that are, I chose people primarily who are not at my institution or in my, I don't think I chose anyone from my particular school. So there's, an, there's another person at Columbia, but not in my school um, where I am. And people that I admire, people that I've wanted to connect with. And so I think we're creating this nice little um, support uh, that when we check in every day with our goals for the day, um, sometimes we check in at the end of the day about how we did and it's just this really nice way of being accountable to each other and to ourselves. It's a really nice tool to keep accountability up, right? Because when we're stuck at home by ourselves, it can be very easy to just let the small goals go and say, oh, I'll just work on that tomorrow. I'll just work on that the next day and or after the weekend. And all of a sudden, an entire month has gone by. And where did the time go? You know? Or you use your meetings with your mentor advisor as like your accountability, like, oh, I don't have to do it today because I don't meet with them until next week. So I have until next week to work on that. And that's also really good to do with your cohort, right? With with my cohort. Okay, so um, it's an Irish university, so it had to center somewhat around drinking. We would have mental health pints every week. When we were still in the office, we would just have a lunch break and just go to a pub, have one pint, and then go back to the office. And we started doing those virtually, so we would have mental health pints virtually over Zoom and just for half an hour, 45 minutes, just meet, chat, and just have maybe maybe a lunchtime drink but it wasn't so much centered on holding ourselves accountable but i found that that started slacking after the first couple of months and then the zoom fatigue kicked in so do you have any tips on how to keep that going yeah i think that's hard because like this whole thing has been ambiguous to some extent like i remember back a little more than a year ago when we thought we're going to be locked down for two weeks that's going to be really hard but like in two weeks we'll be out and everything will be better. And then that turned into three weeks and then a month and then six months. And so like the absolute 
uncontrollability of all of this and the obscuring of, at least I think in the US, of the reality of the situation. And this, I know that's true in other countries as well, I think has made it all really challenging because you don't know, you don't know how to make plans for anything. Like you don't know what is going to happen tomorrow. So keeping up your energy when everything is completely unpredictable and uncontrollable is really, really challenging. Like even under the non-pandemic uh, situation. So I think it's absolutely understandable that it would be hard to keep up. Like even the good things that you enjoy doing because like what's the point at some point, right? Like this is just going to go on for what, five years, ten years? Like we don't know. I'm being a little bit facetious there. Yeah, it's not going to go on for five or ten years, but like it's just it's completely unknowable and uncontrollable. Yeah, there's so much uncertainty that we have to deal with on top of that threat, that actual physical threat of the virus itself, right? And then not being able to go out, not being able to see our families, that all just adds to that energy drain, essentially, right? It's just a tap that's open and right. we're going to be empty at some stage, right? Yes. And no one's taking stage, vacations, right? Because right? what's a vacation right now? Um, even though that's still really important. It's difficult, yeah. So what are some of the strategies that you recommend in these workshops um, to the students, to your participants, uh, to combat that kind of energy drain? So I think one is that kind of related to what you were just saying is this, I think it's important to change your context, even if that just means going into a different room. Like if you can't actually leave your house, going to a different room, looking at a different view from your window, um, sitting on a different chair, I think can be really helpful. Even before the pandemic at about two o'clock every day, I would feel like I just couldn't sit in my chair any longer looking at what I was looking at. And so I would like need a context change. Um, and I think that that's especially true now because we have so few contexts that we can even be in. And I think also like there's this adage that, you know, our brains need off time in order to be creative and to really think in unique, interesting, creative, thoughtful ways. And so if you are constantly working, your brain never gets any off time to sort of make unique connections. When I was doing my PhD, the last year of my PhD, I was working full time and writing my dissertation. And I just, I had no free time. And one of my colleagues, I was working in OBGYN, a reproductive endocrinologist said, like, you have no thinky brainy time because you don't have any time when you can just sort of like sit down and think about what you're learning or thinking about what you're like finding in your analyses. Um, and I think that that's really important because otherwise we just don't like have that off time to sort of bring together all of the things that we're learning and doing. I think creative thinking is really important for academics because it's, it's through creative thinking that we really make like new um, leaps in our research or come up with new ideas or have new theories. So I think that's really important. So I think personally that taking weekends off right now is really important. Um, I think that as much as people can take at least one day off a week, I think that that can be really helpful. I also think that it's important and related to changing your context, you need different inputs. So you need to think about different things other than your work. So that means like going to a museum or watching, you know, there's a lot of theater online. So taking in different things other than your work can be really helpful. Because even if you read a book of fiction, like sometimes that can help you see what you're doing in your own work in a different way, or it can spark an idea because you've got this different context that you're working in. Like we all know that like we all pretty much think better in the shower. So those different contexts, those different inputs, right? That's all 
it's all really helpful. So if all you're doing all day, every day is like sitting in your office or your room or your living room and looking at the same things every day, like you're not getting any diversity of inputs. And that's a big part of what's important about social connection is the diversity of inputs. And the other thing is that I think a lot of people are struggling with like memory right now. And I think a big part of it is that we have no, we really rely on contextual cues to encode memory. So like you remember something that happened because you were at a pub with your friends and your friend was wearing that green hat. So those things help you remember that event. If you're just sitting in your office all day, looking at the same things all day, like not talking to anyone, you have no way of encoding all of the stuff that you need to. So I think that also like those context chains are really important for that too. I think connecting to people is really important. It's hard. I had this like massively brilliant realization recently that I feel less disconnected when I'm connected to people. So like if I am like doing Zoom meetings, even though I- Mind blown. I know. Even if I hate Zoom meetings, like they actually can really make me feel better and more connected to people. So it's, I think it's important to really just push it. And I think there are people out there in the world, in all of our worlds, who would just love to talk to us on Zoom, who would be honored to provide some mentorship or support, or just like a break from work and to have some nice, easy chat time with people. So I think that's really important. I've really discovered some unexpected sources of support during the pandemic, which has been really nice. I think letting ourselves have our feelings is really important. I think if we are working all the time, we're not letting ourselves have all of the grief and emotions that we all are feeling like down in the pit of our stomachs during the pandemic. And if you're working and grieving and feeling emotions at the same time, you're not going to do either of them well. So I think you need to give our, we need to give ourselves space to really have the feelings that we're feeling. Um, I, for a while, and I haven't done this in a while, but it was really helpful. I did free writing every morning before I started working. I have all these like the things that I've tried before working, like meditating before working, free writing before working, and they all work. And then for some reason I don't keep them up, but like sitting down and writing out whatever is in your head that's worrying you or stressing you out before you start your work day, I think can be really helpful. Um, to just sort of like cathart to some extent and get it out into the world. Um, I think even though in some parts of the world things are better, um, even good change is hard change. So even if the U.S. were all back to normal, whatever that is, and whether or not that's really, I mean, it's hard to have a lot of hope right now, even with all of this going on. It's still hard. It's hard to change all the habits that you've developed over the past year. It can be hard to feel like you know how to be around people 24 7 again all of those things there's definitely a heightened social anxiety when i think about going back into an office or just like meeting people i feel like and even like when i talk to friends now they're all like i need some time to acclimatize myself to being in a room with other people right so we we crave it but at the same time i feel like we're kind of scared of it if that makes sense yeah i think any, like, as I said, any change is hard. So it's hard to know what it's going to be like. And there's still so many unknowns. Like, are we going to have to wear masks when we go back to work? Like, how many people are allowed to be back at work for us at Columbia? They're trying to, I think they're still trying to keep us so that we're not all there at the same time. So what does that mean? So there are just a lot of unknowns. And also you haven't seen people in a year. And so that's, that's kind of weird too, because how do you catch up and like... I don't know, we have to start worrying about what the back of our heads look like now because we haven't had to worry about that in a year, right? Or whatever is below, like our waists, like 
We might start yeah. wearing shoes again. Like all of these things are just yeah. different and weird. My yoga pants are gonna feel so neglected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all those people who Marie Kondoed like right before the pandemic are gonna be really bummed, right? Because they don't have anything left in their houses <laughs> for anything. Absolutely, yeah. Um, there's one really interesting thing that you mentioned in your seminar, and that is keeping or staying connected to your why. And um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so I, when I, I had a break in my PhD program because my father died suddenly and I fell behind and I just, I didn't defend my dissertation or de propose my dissertation in time. So I had to leave my program. And so during that break, I worked in OBGYN for a while. And then during that, I had a year when I worked in marketing. I consider it to be like my foreign exchange year into marketing. Um, I was like the research person for the marketing team. And it was just like a completely different culture. Like they're not academics. They're like talking about reorgs and corpse and like all these words that I don't understand even today. And one of the things that my boss would talk about all the time was like, what's your why? Figure out your why. And for the longest time, I thought it was just like weird marketing speak from these weird people who don't know anything about like the world or academia. Sorry to all the marketing people in the audience. Um, but it's just very weird if you've like been in school your entire life to then go and work for a year in like the not school area. And then like during the pandemic, I realized that I think that's the big challenge right now is that it's hard for all of us to remember, why are we doing this? Like, why are we getting a PhD? Why are we going after a tenure track position? Why are we doing a postdoc? Why are we studying psychology or whatever it is that we study? Like, what's the what's the thing that's driving us to do that? And I think it's challenging because you have to really get to the bottom of that. So when I presented at one of the schools, um, one person said, well, my why is to be a professor. And like, that's not, that's not gonna motivate you to like persevere despite the pandemic, if that's your goal. And especially because I think the undercurrent when I was presenting this to a lot of the schools was, the impacts of the pandemic on the academic job market. And if you are feeling like your big why is to become a professor, if you are going on the market, that's going to create all these challenges for you because you may not get that. And so you have to really connect, I think, to the why that's deeper than that. So for her, it was science communication was her why, that she really wanted to make sure that the general public had a really strong understanding of science and to really be the person who can help them understand like her specific area of science. And so I think connecting to like, why am I studying what I'm studying? Why do I want to get that PhD? Not just like because I'm going to be the first in my family, but like what, what is it about that goal that's going to change your life, change your identity, is the thing that's really moving you forward in your life. And then if you can connect to that big why for your life, I think that that can sort of rekindle your intrinsic motivation to keep going every day. Because I think that's the other big thing is that if we're all just trying to do all of this because we think we should, or because our mentors or advisors tell us we need to get this paper done, or the school is telling us we need to propose our dissertation, like that's not gonna keep us moving in the long haul and despite adversity. We have to connect to what it is that's really driving us ourselves. Do you have any tips how we can, you know, find out exactly what our why is? I am a big believer in dialogue as a way to sort of figure things out. I think relationships are how we figure out a lot of things. And so I think 
like one of the groups I presented to, they were planning to actually start getting together afterwards to figure it out. And I have these little workshop worksheets that I created for myself to figure out like my five-year plan. And part of it is that you have to answer at the top, like in five years, I want to be known as and or known for, and then I want to, well, there are two things that you want to be known for. So for me, that's a part of my why, like wanting to be known for this aspect of my research is a big part of my why. Although that's not it, and I'll get back to that in a second, because I think that's a superficial why too. Um, so part of it is like connecting to why you're studying what you're studying, but it, I think talking to other people and talking through it can be really helpful because you can challenge each other to go deeper with it. And it's got to be someone you trust and like. Um, I think recently I found some stuff that I had written when I was in my master's program about why I wanted to teach psychology and a big part of it was what I call radical social transformation. So wanting to really change the world for the better in terms of increasing people's empathy for other people. Um, I studied theater and I studied psychology and I think a big part of that was really wanting to get to be inside other people to understand their perspectives and see things differently than my own. And so for me, that's a big part of my why. Um, so illuminating things that other people may not see in the world or understand in the world um, from other people's perspectives. And so that big cultural change, I think, is a big part of what my like underlying, deep underlying why is. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you think that we can carry these tools over now that the world is opening up again and that we are moving into a hybrid working environment or research environment? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm very excited to see what happens in academia as more millennials take over and as more Gen Zers enter academia, because I think the goals and motivations and values are shifting um, to more of a work-life balance, to less focus on like achievement for achievement's sake. Um, and so I'm very interested to see if like things shift in academia because of these different values and goals. And I think that one of the ways that we can do that is to really keep all of us connected to our intrinsic motivations for things rather than focusing on what other people are achieving and what we think we should achieve. So I think it's helpful no matter what the context is. And in terms of the tools that you've been kind of giving to your participants, what do you think is something that we can carry through into a hybrid world or you know, keep going to help us be more sustainable when we are back? Yeah, I think all of them. Like I think creating a five-year plan and setting goals is really helpful no matter what. Um, in the United States, a lot of us end up applying for NIH funds to support our research. And for some of us, we do training grants. So those are grants that pay us to do research, but also to get trained in a research area. And part of what we have to do is talk about like, what do we want to be when we grow up? Like, how do we see ourselves? What is this training? What is this money going to do for us? So you have to do that in a lot of grants. Um, and I think for me, when I wrote mine, I didn't really have a very clear sense of what my future was going to look like. I think some of that's just like the difficulties in completing all of this sort of made me have foreshortened future and, and not a lot of sight um, towards my future. But I think having a clear sense as to what your five-year plan is can really help you create more proximal goals. So goals for the year, for the month, for the week, for the day, so that you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing every day. It can also make it so that you know what you need to do to meet your goals. So if you decide that your goal for this year is to have five first authored publications, which is actually not a lot, I'm going to say two first authored publications, 
like then you create the steps that you need in order to get to that. And then you're not worrying about whether or not someone has three publications that are first authored because that's not your goal. Your goal is to do two. And so you feel good about you meeting your own goal and you don't have to worry about other people. So I think focusing on what we want and how we want to get there, I think is a really important thing no matter what the the pandemic-ish context is. I also think that just honoring our feelings is really important no matter what. So some days when I've struggled, I create two lists for my day of things that I need to do that I absolutely need to do because of deadlines and then things that I could do. So if I get through all of the things that I absolutely need to do, if I still have energy, if I have time, if I feel up to it, then I can work on the things that I could do. One of the things that I talk about with people as a nice tool is the Pomodoro technique, which is um, the tomato technique. Um, so you, there are apps on for your phone where you can download and you set a timer. So you work for 15 minutes and then it gives you a 15 minute break, a five minute break, you work for 15 minutes. And for me, I don't really like that because I like longer bursts than 15 minutes. So I use, um, when I was starting my postdoc, I used the Hamadoro technique, which is the number of Hamilton sound tracks that I can get through in a day. But the thing that works for me for the Pomodoro technique is if there's something that I'm really dreading or putting off or that I feel like I can't do because I'm not, you know, smart enough or whatever, using the Pomodoro technique can get you started on something. And often when you get started on something that you've been dreading, like it's never as bad as you think it is. Sometimes it is. Um, but also once you get started, you can just keep going. So the Pomodoro technique is really good for keeping going with things. Getting support is good no matter what. I think taking control over whatever it is that you can in your life is really helpful. So goals can be good for that, but this is a, no matter what the world is uncontrollable. So having control over the things that you can healthily have control over, I think is really important. And self-compassion is really important. If there's one thing that you could recommend to one of your new PhDs now, what would that be? I mean, I think sustainable habits is a really important thing, but I think if I had one thing that I wish that everyone listening to this would do is figure out a way to use the summer to hit the reset button and to really um, take a break and get refreshed because I have a hunch that fall is going to be hard and it's going to be different. It's going to be stressful, even if it's all good. And so I think if we don't all sort of like take a moment, figure out what all of this has meant in our lives, really have all of the feelings and figure out, you know, what's going on for us and really refresh, like we're going to start the fall with a massive deficit and that's going to lead to even more burnout than I think that we're seeing already. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I was also just making the connection between the end of the pandemic and kind of the general job market and academia and kind of keeping a motivation up with no real end in sight at the moment because it might be a bit different in the states but over here sure we're dealing with hiring freezes with not a lot of possibilities to find jobs. So that is something that's quite difficult to, to handle. Yeah, I think that's, again, why connecting to your why is really important. That if you can figure out why it is that you're getting this PhD and disconnect it from the academic context and really what's motivating you and what's underlying your motivation, I think that can make that a little bit easier because it can free you up to be a little bit more creative about what your options are. I'm a big believer in like follow all the paths at the same time. Like don't just get stuck on one pathway for yourself. Follow them all and just see what happens. So 
That may mean applying for academic jobs, but also other, like five other kinds of jobs and just see what happens. Maybe you'll find the perfect thing that you hadn't been expecting. But also I feel like it's better to have some options than no options. If you just constrain your options and ha end up with nothing, it's better to have something that's maybe less than ideal. So I think be creative and really think about what it is that you want to do underneath everything that you think that you should be doing. But it's gonna be tough. I think things are bouncing back in the United States in terms of academic hiring, or at least that's what I've been hearing from some places, but we have no way of knowing because it wasn't that great before the pandemic. It was already highly competitive. And I'm sure it varies from country to country um, wildly. So it's a rough time overall. I think also if people on postdocs or people on PhDs, if you can, you know, delay a year going onto the market, I think that may be not a horrible thing. Um, if that's a possibility, that may not be a bad idea to discuss and explore. It's a very powerful idea to when you have your why in mind, it just makes things so much easier to process and just put into context. So I find that I try to end on a very positive note <laughs> and not so much on a bleak, the job market is non-existent. Good luck out there. <laughs> It'll be better in a year when everyone is on the market at the same time. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I think, you know, we can think about the things that have been good over the past year and try to keep those going. So for example, my cousins and I have been doing cousin time and we created a cousin chat. And it's been a really nice time to get to connect and to get to know them better. And I don't think that that would have happened necessarily had it not been for the pandemic. Um, I also started sending presents randomly to people in my family, um, just as a way to give them something to do, like little crafts or whatever, things to do. And I think stuff like that is nice because you're doing nice things for other people, connecting to new people, connecting in different ways. Um, all of those things that we have felt have been helpful over the past year, I think we should all definitely continue. That sounds wonderful. And Cindy, if people who want to follow your work or connect with you, where can we find you? We were talking about Twitter before. Yeah, Twitter's probably the best way, but unfortunately I chose a handle that requires you to know how to spell my last name, um, but it's Cindy B. Veldheis, um on Twitter. So if you know the spelling of my last name, you can probably just search for my name and find me because there aren't that many Cindy Veldheises. There's one swimmer and one model, as far as I know, in the Netherlands, and then it's me. So and then it's you, and we'll make sure to <laughs> we'll make sure to put your handle in the show notes as well. So um, if people want to go there, we will, if that's okay with you, also share it on our social media. So hopefully you get a lot of new followers because um, I'm following you on Twitter, and I find it uh, really great and informative to get an insight into what you do on an everyday basis, and also see a bit about your DIY projects, which I really enjoy. <laughs> Cindy, thank you so much for coming on to the show and for taking the time to chat with me and thank you to the listeners for listening into this episode. Let us know how you cope with PhD related stress and as per usual you can find the show on Instagram and Twitter at phdpenningpod or write an email under phdpenningpod at gmail.com. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, consider donating to our Buy Me A Coffee page. And I will see you again in two weeks. And Cindy, I hopefully see you soon, maybe in person at some stage when we're able to travel again. Thank you so much again for taking the time and coming onto the show. This episode of PhD Penning was written and produced by me, Anna Mahler. You can find the show on Instagram and Twitter at phdpenningpod or send me an email to phdpenningpod at gmail.com. 
If you like the content, rate the show five stars in your favorite podcast app or buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash phdpenningpod.